So let me just unpack the title. Welcome to the Kali Yuga. And then I forget the rest. The return of the Divine Feminine, right? Divine Mother. Thank you, Ralph. So Kali Yuga is the fourth. In the Hindu system, there are four epics, four yugas. Gold, silver, bronze, and sucks. Kali Yuga is the sucky yuga. Things are bad. They're not going to get better. It's sad. <laughs> and then it, everything collapses, and then there's you know, a rebirth a few billion years later. So we're in the middle of the Kali Yuga. That's why we see all the stuff that we see happening the, with the climate and politics and everything else. It's not an accident, according to the Hindu system. It's just the cycle. Okay. One of the things that happens in the Kali Yuga is that Kali comes back. Kali is one of the goddesses of the Hindu tradition. It depends on what school of Hinduism you belong to. She plays different roles. But she's basically the mother goddess. You, you notice her, you see her with the skulls around her neck and multiple arms, and she's got severed heads and all that. It doesn't look that pleasant, but what she's killing is everything that needs to die so that the new can be reborn. So we're in this period where what needs to die is dying, and we don't yet know what's being reborn, but mythologically speaking, it's all the work of the Divine Mother. So as harrowing harrowing as it can be, it's also an opportunity to engage in reclaiming the Divine Feminine, and that really means reclaiming relationship. So... That's all I have to say about that <laughs> in regard to Hinduism. We're really going to take a look at some texts that belong to the Judeo-Christian tradition to talk about the same thing and to talk about how we can participate, especially we as in liberal religious people can participate in bringing out the best of the divine feminine, the best of the, the, the Kali Yuga as we can perceive it. So I'm going to read, we're going to study text, which to me is the most fun thing to do. <laughs> and everyone else, I can hear, oh yeah, all right, text, right? <laughs> What's the opening line of Genesis? In English, in English, we'll just work in English. In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Obviously, you're not going to win at Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Bible for 200 Opening line, you know, what is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So a few of you knew it, a lot of you didn't. doesn't matter, you're all wrong. That's what it says in English. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know how these translations get started. Certainly English isn't the first to, do, to, to take the Hebrew and do that with it. But the Hebrew is much more ambivalent and therefore more interesting. So the Hebrew is, just so you hear it, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ve-et ha-aretz. And a literal translation is, Bereshit, I'm going to go into that, so I'm going to leave it untranslated, created God's heavens and earth. It's not that God created anything, but that God is in fact part of the creation. Something else created God, heavens, and the earth. There's something else is called reshit. The b in the beginning means by means of. 
So by means of a beginning, whatever that is, and I'll tell you in a sec, by means of reshit, by means of beginning, were created God's heaven and earth. Let's talk about God's first, Elohim. So in the Hebrew tradition, in the Jewish tradition, when you're dealing with Hebrew text, you're not encouraged to take a literal view. Even if you're an Orthodox Jew, the literal view is the view you get when you're just a little kid. But by the time you're 10, certainly by the time you're bar or bat mitzvah, you know, 13, you're not supposed to think flat. You're not supposed to think literal. And you're given the tools to re to reimagine the text. Now, these are tools that are lost on you if you don't know Hebrew, and I don't have time to give you a whole Hebrew seminar. <laughs> Though, if you ever ask me to, I'd be happy to do that. But I'm just going to cut to the chase. So the word God, in, in the beginning, God created, is misleading. First of all, it's, in the Hebrew, it's plural, not singular. It's gods. Second of all, according to the or a Jewish reading, the word Elohim, gods, actually means nature. You could read the text, in the beginning created nature, heavens, and earth. So it's like, if you were imagining it in a printed text, nature, colon, heavens, and earth. So now you know what nature is, the whole universe. How do you get from gods to nature? So, to do that, you need numerology, Hebrew numerology. It's called gematria. Every Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent. When you add up the the numerical value of any Hebrew word and you find other words that uh, have the same value, you can use them as synonyms if, in doing so, you can find meaning in the text. Does that make sense? You follow that idea? The word Elohim, if you add up all the letters, and I won't drag you through that, comes to the number 86. The word Hateva, which means nature, comes to the number, equals the number 86. So Elohim and nature, gods and nature, are the same. Then they go, that's why gods is plural, because nature is myriad. So the creation, nature herself, is multiform, and therefore the synonym that they use in the opening line of Genesis is plural. So I'm going to stop again. You with me? If you're lost, stop me. Okay, so now it says, by means of reshit, which I still haven't translated, by means of reshit were created nature, and that means the cosmos, heavens and earth. What's reshit? So you can't tell from the text itself. So what you do when you're doing a Jewish reading of the Bible is you look for somewhere else in the Bible to define the words you're trying to define in the passage you're trying to understand. It doesn't matter if there's any chronological connection. It doesn't matter if there's any logical connection. You're just looking for some way, because the Bible is considered, uh, Roger said earlier it was a... what did you say? A Rorschach blot. You can find anything in here. And that's, right? It's really a reflection of your own state of mind, which is not false. 
So you're trying to enter into a certain state of mind that will help you find meaning in this text that doesn't violate your understanding of reality. So for me, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thank you for playing. It doesn't work for me. But if reshit, whatever that is, is the source from which all the universe comes, now I'm, I'm more interested, but I have to know what reshit is. So the way to find, one way to find that is you go to the book of Proverbs. So way at the other end and another, you know, centuries and centuries later than the book of Genesis. But in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 8, verse 22, which is one of my favorite verses, all of a sudden this woman starts to speak. Now, Hebrew is a gendered language. So, um, you know, tables are, ma- are, are uh, masculine. I'm not sure. I think, it's, I think tables are feminine. Not, but I'm not so great <laughs> with my gender. But uh, in, in Hebrew, I guess I'm gender fluid. I don't remember what things are what. But, you know, the body, your physical body is masculine, whether you're... Uh, male or female. Your physical body is masculine in, in gender, the word itself. Your spirit is always feminine, regardless of who we're talking about. It's just the way the language works. So in Proverbs 8, verse 22, suddenly this woman speaks, this feminine voice happens. And she refers to herself, she is chachma, which means wisdom, Sophia in the Greek. And you know, if you don't know the language, you don't know that Chachma is feminine, Sophia is feminine. So when it says in 822, um, the Lord, I'll come back to that, created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts long ago, you don't know that the me is feminine. Unless you're reading in the Hebrew, then you can tell. But otherwise, you're lost. So all of a sudden, in a book that is overwhelmingly masculine, you get this strong feminine voice. And what she says is, is that she was the first of the Lord's creating. Now, there is no word Lord in the actual text. The, the word that's in the text is not a noun at all. It's a verb. And it's the verb for happening. So, really, the text says, before the happening that is all happening, before the first thing that the happening happened as was me. Right? The divine wisdom or the divine feminine. The very first thing that manifests from the unmanifest is her. So the word first is reshit. So now you go back to Genesis 1 and it says, by means of wisdom or the divine feminine or the divine mother, everything is created. Now that makes much more sense because we know that everything that's created is created through the feminine. If you're trying to write a book that will make sense to people, that would be a much more sensible statement than to have some male god be the, the creator. Women are the, or, or the feminine is the creator. So in this text, she tells you that's exactly how it works. Something happens outside of our understanding so that's the unmanifest. And whatever that is, manifests first as her. 
So the divine feminine that we're talking about in the Kali Yuga, whether we call it Kali or something else, it's this wisdom phenomenon. Well, she's personified in the Bible, so it's, it's a woman. But you can take that literally or not literally, but the idea is that in the beginning, it's feminine wisdom that creates the universe. If you want to find your place in the universe, you have to go through feminine wisdom. And I'll define that for you. The Bible defines that for you just in a second. Well, let me stop again. So, are you with me so far still? Right? I mean, it's anybody completely lost? All right? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Uh, let the record show that no one is lost. <laughs> Now, what's the, what does wisdom do after she creates the universe? So it says, first she goes on, just to make sure you get the point, I, I won't belabor it, but ages ago I was set up before the beginnings of the earth, before there were depths of the seas, there were no springs, there was no water, there was no mountains, there was nothing, there were no fields, no animals, blah, 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 blah. There was just me. And then through me, everything happens. Uh, I, the way she describes herself, and this is hard because the Hebrew is sort of vague, even more vague than I'm saying it now. She says, I was beside the creator that unmanifest. So she's the first thing that's manifest. I was beside the unmanifest, either as his, or, or, or it's really, builder. You know, so she was the actual builder of the universe. Or as a child. So it, it's very hard to tell from the text which, it could go either way from the Hebrew. It's, it's, a, it's, it's quite vague. But the next line tries to tell you what it, she means if she means child. I was the unmanifest's daily delight. So wisdom manifest is joy. That's how you know you're in touch with wisdom. There's a difference in wisdom and knowledge from the, from the proverb sense is wisdom evokes joy, knowledge is just information. It may make you happy, it may not make you happy, but joy and happiness is not the same either. But wisdom, knowing wisdom, having wisdom, brings you some sense of deep joy. And in the second hour we can talk about what, what that joy might be. But that's how you know you're in touch with wisdom. As scary as Kali looks, you know, with her tongue hanging out and the, and the skull necklace and all that, encountering the divine feminine actually brings you joy and is, I guess you say, a fundamental step in your own creative process. As she wipes out everything that you have to let go of, as she kills off everything that has to die in your life, in your consciousness, it brings you a sense of joy, and that joy is the birth pangs of whatever creativity you're going to bring to the moment. All right. So let's go back for a second to Genesis 1. By means of wisdom comes the universe. From where then? What's this unmanifest? The Bible in, in Genesis 1 doesn't seem to give you any hint of the unmanifest. In the Hebrew, though, according to the mystics, and this is really a stretch, I know. But according to the Jewish mystics, when you look at the text, because Hebrew goes from uh, left to right, 
in the upper left-hand corner, just before it says B, the letter B, by means of Reishi, wisdom, just before you get the letter B is the letter Aleph, the letter A. Now, a, na- a sane person would say, oh, it means verse 1. <laughs> but <clears throat> from the mystic point of view, the little tiny Aleph is this pointer toward the unmanifest because the olive carries no sound. So whatever the unmanifest is, it's silent. We only know the manifest world. So there's something else that we we don't know anything about. That's beyond our rational minds. But our rational minds can understand that the universe is created through wisdom. There's There's wisdom to it. When you're in touch with wisdom, you understand the way the universe works. It may not lead you back to the silent unmanifest, but it does lead you to a deeper understanding of what the universe is. So here's what the universe is. The book, you know, the first book, Genesis, and the book of Proverbs are both in the official Bible of most, well, all, all churches and synagogues. The next book, the last book we're going to look at, the last section, is from the Apocrypha. So the way these things work is you start with the five books of Moses, and then you have all these other books, the prophets and all these other novellas like Esther and Ruth and all that. Then you get an intermediary intermediary period of a couple centuries. When people still write books, these are all Jews, so Jews are still writing books, but they're not books that are considered by the Jews holy. They're just more books. And these are some of the most interesting books in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible. Most Protestants don't accept them either. So if you read a Jewish Bible, it goes from uh, the five books of Moses to the the prophets, to the anthology of writings, Ruth and Psalms and those things. And that's the end of it. It's done. If you get a Christian Bible, Protestant Bible, you get the same three books, the same three collections of books in a different order. It goes the five books of Moses, then you get the anthology of writings, and then you get the prophets. (coughs) And the reason for the switch is the Christians thought the prophets were talking about Jesus, and since they go from the prophets to the Gospels, right, you know, right away to, to Matthew, they wanted the prophets to be the signal that Jesus is coming, so turn the page, and then you get the Gospels. Chronologically, historically, that makes no sense, but that, and that's not the Jewish understanding. The Jewish understanding is the prophets are all about the Jews, and so we put it in the middle, and then we have this anthology collection at the end. However you do it, Protestant Bibles take the same three sections of books, collections of books that the Jews have, and then tack the New Testament onto it, the Gospels and Paul and the other letters. In the Anglican world, the Episcopal world, and the Catholic world, and the Orthodox Christian world, they take the two centuries worth of books that Jews kept writing between the end of the Hebrew Scripture and the beginning of the Gospels, and they stick them in there. They're not, they're not adverse to saying there's divine wisdom in these books. It's called the Apocrypha. 
And that's where this next book comes from. The book is called The Wisdom of Solomon. Supposedly Solomon wrote it. Supposedly Solomon wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs. And then he wrote the book of the Wisdom of Solomon. Solomon didn't write any of those things, but that's who it's ascribed to. So this is the Wisdom of Solomon. In the Wisdom of Solomon, Solomon has this relationship with Chochmah Sophia, Lady Wisdom. And he says, he gives you a list. And I'm really always interested in what we make of this list. He gives you a list of what wisdom brings when you study the universe through the eyes of wisdom, what, what you'll learn. So this is what he says. You get unerring knowledge of existence. And then he breaks it down. You get to know the structure of the world and the activity of the elements. So <clears throat> by structure of the world, <coughs> excuse me, He's talking about cosmology. It's not just Earth, because he's going to come back to that. But it's the structure of, of the universe itself, so it's cosmology, I guess. And the activity of the elements. So what is that? Is that maybe chemistry? No, I mean, this, this is just what they tell you, and then you've got to figure out what is that in our, in our understanding. The activity of the elements. The beginning, middle, and end of time. So maybe that's history... Or maybe that's something else. What's the study of time? Well, that's, that's, is that a science, chronology, or is there... Philosophy. You know, maybe it's philosophy. I mean, you know, these are all vague terms. You've got to figure out what they mean in modern English. Um, the alternations of solstices and the changing of the seasons. So that would be... Yeah, it's like, like meteorology or... <laughs> climatology or something like that. Uh, The cycles of the year and the constellations of the stars, that's got to be astronomy, I guess. The natures of animals and the tempers of wild beasts, so the natures of cultivated animals. That's like animal husbandry, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing out names. And the tempers of wild beasts. So getting into animal psychology, if, if that's a science, I don't know. The powers of wind and the thoughts of human beings. So powers of wind, is that, are we back to meteorology? I don't know. And then psychology, the thoughts of human beings. The varieties of plants and the virtues of roots. So that's like er- botany and maybe herbal medicine. And he then ends the little section here. I learned both what is secret and what is manifest. <clears throat> so it's not just the surface he learns, but he learns deeply into the structures of these um, various sciences. And how, how do you know it's true? Because, he says, wisdom, and again, you can't tell from the English, but it's feminine language here. Wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. So she is the source for science. Uh, it goes on and on. There's a lot more that, that would be here. But so, so here's, here's the, where I think this goes. In the Bible, there are multiple streams of philosophical thought. The one that interests me 
is the Divine Mother, Chachma Sophia, strand. This is the one that comes primarily from uh, maybe 2nd century BCE. This is a, a mixture of Hebrew and Greek thinking. A lot of this stuff comes from Jews who were living in Greek-speaking lands, Alexandria, in, in Egypt especially. The Proverbs is written in Hebrew. Genesis certainly is written in Hebrew. But the Wisdom of Solomon is a Greek text, Jewish, but still it's written in Greek. That strand of the Bible, that strand of teaching in the Bible, tells us that if you really want to live in harmony with the world as it is, you have to live in harmony with feminine wisdom, which is not some abstract mystical thing, but includes, let me, let me back up, it's not only some abstract mystical thing, it includes all the practical sciences. It is understanding the nature of nature and living in harmony with it. And then if we had time, which we don't, but the entire book of Ecclesiastes is how do you live in harmony with nature with knowing that nature is fundamentally impermanent and um, chaotic? How do you live with impermanence? How do you live with insecurity? So that, that, that whole package of things the hard sciences, the soft sciences, and maybe even the spiritual sciences, if, that, if you can use that term, that's what the Divine Mother teaches. And her books are the ones that do that. So her library is primarily, the major books, are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, um, the Wisdom of Solomon, and one other one from the, Greek, the Jewish Greek tradition, the Wisdom of Sirach. These are the primary, five primary books. There are other bits and pieces in the Bible that reflect her, but these are the five primary books. And there is actually a school of thought that promotes these, even now, even in the 21st century. They have different names in different places, but Sophiology in the Russian Orthodox Church. But in the United States, there's an order of nuns, and I probably have mentioned them to you before, but there's an order of nuns called the Daughters of Wisdom who were founded in the early 1700s. I think the, maybe 1704, but don't hold me to that. You can Google it. But the Daughters of Wisdom, they have centers all around the United States, all around the world, and they teach just this material. When you go to their center in Litchfield, Connecticut, where I'll be going in about six weeks, you walk into their sanctuary, which is very plain, very simple, beautiful stained glass, and no crucifix. They're Catholic, no crucifix. Instead, they have this larger-than-life Mary, who they think is their archetype for this wisdom character in the Bible. Mary is elevated way above your heads, I and mean, you're sitting in you know, the, the chairs, and she's elevated way above your head. She's standing on the moon. And she's got her hands in that prayer posture. And she's looking down at you uh, from the sky. And the way they have it set up, just the mechanics of it is, it must be some kind of rebar behind her. So she's floating in space. She's not attached to the wall. She seems to be floating out there, looking at, at all of you in the, in the pews. And... Their devotion is to her through the study of those five books. Their focus is on, on 
having a personal relationship with Mary the way you might have a personal relationship with some other god or goddess. They don't study chemistry. They don't study meteorology. That's not how they, they understand it. That's not how they see their work. But what they do see is that when you're in touch with the divine feminine, you live in harmony with nature and all of nature's creatures, both human and, and animal, and as well as, as everything else, because she's the mother of everything else. The Kali Yuga, if we're going to get through the Kali Yuga with any kind of, I don't know, if we're going to survive this in any way that isn't absolutely the destruction of everything we hold dear, the theory is that you have to go back to the source. And the source isn't the masculine God. The source is the feminine. You have to go back to the divine mother. This is obviously mythical speak, you know, talking in mythical terms. But you have to go back to that source that created the whole thing, including God's and the rest of the universe. Everything comes from her. And when you're in touch with her, you realize the interconnectedness of those seven sciences. And you operate in a way that is in harmony with even the madness of everyday life. So that you find joy even in the midst of sorrow. So that you find meaning even when the events seem random, if not actually meaningless. The key to this epic of the Kali Yuga is Kali herself, is the divine feminine herself, is to get in touch with that. So here's the challenge, and I'm going to end with this. Here's the challenge to liberals. For most of my life, I didn't like this kind of language. It sounds anthropomorphic. Okay, we get rid of the God the guy, now we got God the gal. I mean, that's just, you know, it's not going to do it for me. But the more deeply I started working with this material, the more I realized, first of all, it's, it's archetypal language, so I'm not, you don't have to take it literally. But the more I came to be convinced that there is this wisdom, and the wisdom is somehow, and we'll flesh this out in, in the second hour, is somehow feminine. It's not patriarchal, it's not hierarchical, it's not militaristic, it's not pacifistic either. But it's none of the things that we associate with the masculine God throughout history and and multiple cultures. It's absolutely something else. And it's getting in touch with that something else and working through that that will allow us to get through this next epoch without, you know, maybe the the, the, the temperature goes two degrees (laughs) higher than it needs to as opposed to four. I really, I'm just giving you... A vague, wild example. But that, that we can work with the forces of nature rather than against the forces of nature in order to, I guess, salvage what can be salvaged so that when this epic ends, we're ready for a, a more perfect world. So I'm going to stop with that. We're going to unpack whatever I said. <laughs> You'll tell me what I said, and we'll try to make meaning of it in the second hour. Thank you. <laughs>